Well, good morning to you all. If this is your first Sunday with us, my name is John Gilner, and I serve here as one of our executive pastors. And this morning, later um, during my message, we will be celebrating communion together. So if you don't have those elements already, you have a few minutes to slip out and to get, the, to get those. Well, since the end of January, we have been in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, it comes from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. In that, Paul, in, in that letter, Paul was spelling out for the believers of the church what their lives should look like. He told them they should not live according to the to ways of the, the flesh, ways of living that hurt others or oneself. So those were things like sexual immorality, idolatry, hatred, discord, and selfish ambition. And, and in contrast to the ways of the, the self, Paul instructed the Galatian church to walk by the Spirit. They should live in ways that, that lead to flourishing for others and themselves. He said that living in the Spirit means that there are other behaviors and characteristics that should define our lives. In chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, Paul says, and you can read along with me, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today, on the final Sunday of this series, we're talking about self-control. It's interesting that it would be the last one mentioned. You, you might think that control of the self would need to be first, but Paul lists it last. And this Sunday, as you've noticed, is also Palm Sunday. Uh, on this Sunday, we remember when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just days before he'd be crucified and buried. And for those of you who have been around for a few years, you may know that I love Palm Sunday. I love Palm Sunday because every year a certain video shows up on my memories on Facebook. It, it's a video from 2016 when the kids came, when they came through and waved their palm branches just like we saw them do a few moments ago. And my sweet son was apparently not having it that day. The, the pomp and circumstance that others were feeling that you may have just been feeling, it had completely passed him by. It was Sunday, but he knew Friday was coming. And so without any more commentary, this is how that procession went for him. I love, I love that video. Everywhere we have people comment online about it. I've already had a few people ask me when I'm going to post it again. What I love about it this year is that it combines our theme for the day with Palm Sunday. I mean, did you see the self-control that Jonathan exhibited? <laughs> he wasn't going crazy or overboard with his, you know, with his palm branches. He was contained. He told, the, he told me that the person behind him was stepping on his palm branch, and he just kind of gave him a mean mug. And, but he didn't, he didn't do anything more than that. Self-control on Palm Sunday. That's what we're talking about today. What do you think of when I say self-control? The, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is a series of videos that was popular on, on TikTok a while ago. These clips would show a mom or dad at a restaurant, usually a, a Mexican restaurant, doing that old familiar thing that moms and dads do. After eating handfuls of chips and salsa, they push the chips away from them and say, get these things away from me. You know, self-control. Or maybe for you, self-control means not responding in, in kind when someone cuts you off. For me, it's not eating the entire bag of Starburst jelly beans in one sitting. I mean, I, I, mean, I will eat the entire bag, just not all at once, if, if I can help it. Or it's not binging that new series you like all in one day. Or perhaps it's not going to Target for the third time in a week under the guise of looking around. 
Or maybe it's fighting the urge to nudge your spouse about one of the things that I just mentioned. Now, all these are they're, they're fine ways of practicing self-control. Most of them are, 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 you know, involve saying no to unhealthy patterns or unhealthy behaviors or things that will get you in trouble with someone in your home. And that's all good, but is that what we're talking about when, when we talk about self-control as fruit of the Spirit? What does self-control have to do with being a, a disciple of Jesus? Our passage for the day is an interesting one. I want to read the whole passage for us. It's taken from, from Matthew's account in chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Matthew writes, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. When I began preparing for today, I wasn't given this text, this text to preach from. The goal was just to preach on self-control. But knowing that I'd be preaching on Palm Sunday, I went to Matthew's account just to read that story again about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And that's when I knew I had to preach on this text for today. Because here, on the, on the, on the day that, that we know as Palm Sunday, just after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, Jesus becomes unhinged as much as Jesus ever gets unhinged. That's right. In this account, we have Jesus, what I like to call a temple tantrum. If we were to go by our standards of what self-control is, we would have a few words for Jesus. I mean, we would talk to him about proper decorum. We would tell him that there's a way to go about things and what he has done isn't right. To have self-control means you contain, you restrain your emotions, you compose yourself, you ask to see the manager, and you probably submit your complaint using a calm, rational voice. Making a scene like Jesus does in this passage probably the opposite of what we would call self-control. What in the world was Jesus doing? I think one of the temptations we have at this point is to see Jesus' actions as a license for our own holy war. If Jesus can get upset and flip some tables about things he was passionate about, then so can I. Those people are going to hear about it. I am on God's side, and those people over there, they're going to catch the brunt of my strongly worded Facebook post. If those people at Walmart say happy holidays to me instead of Merry Christmas one more time, I'm going to go off, you know, in the name of Jesus. If Jesus did it, I can too. Just hold your horses. 
the entry into Jerusalem was about the lamest parade for a king that you could get. Sure, a large number of people were there and shouted, but Jesus came riding in on a donkey. No war horses, no weapons, no endless parade of dignitaries and show of strength. Jesus entered the city on a lowly work animal. I'm sure many of you have been to Disney World. Some of you have just, may have just returned from there. You've lined up for the parade at Magic Kingdom, and it really is an incredible thing to watch. You get to see all of your favorite characters, hear all of your favorite songs. You're, you're transported back into your childhood. And then at night, there's this massive fireworks display. In most years, it's estimated that Disney spends $50 million a year on fireworks and pyrotechnics. I mean, the Disney parades are something to behold. No expense spared. Jesus rides into town on a donkey. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, on a stinky, lowly work animal. It's important that we get what Jesus was up to. None of what takes place happens by accident. From the description of the events, we understand that Jesus is in control. He tells the disciples how things will be, and that's what takes place. He was intentional about what he did, how he did it, and when he did it. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem took place during Passover. This is when a large number of observant Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate God's deliverance. God, God had brought about the liberation of the people from a foreign superpower, Egypt. That, that's what was in the rearview mirror. But they were, what they were dealing with at the time of Jesus was the oppression of another major superpower. This time, it was Rome. So the Passover celebration, it, it had a reputation for, for uprisings. The people get worked up about what God may do to liberate them from this oppressive superpower, Rome. And so to, to, to squash any sort of uprising, Rome would send a contingent of people to keep law in order. They sent people and military to make sure the Jews didn't get any funny ideas. So Pontius Pilate and the Roman military, they made their way east, entering Jerusalem from the west side of the city. And then we have Jesus riding in on a donkey, entering from the other side of the city. Not necessarily a clash of titans, you might say. But you get the sense that this is what the people wanted. They were up for a fight. Matthew says that the, lar the very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, cut branches from the trees and spread those on the ground as well, and they shouted, Hosanna! The shout of Hosanna. This is, this is a cry, it's a, it's a plea for liberation. It's not just a, a, a religious word, it's a, it's a political word. They are shouting and hoping that Jesus will set them free from Rome. They want Jesus to be their new king. They spread their cloaks on the ground because that's what you did for kings, just as the people had done for King Jehu in 2 Kings and the palm branches. I heard one scholar say that those are not like the giant foam fingers that you get at a baseball game to wave around. The palm branches were loaded with political overtones. About 200 years prior, there was another revolt. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. And there, Judas Maccabeus led the Jewish people in victory over an oppressive regime. And in celebration, after cleansing the temple, does this sound familiar? The people shouted and waved palm branches. Jesus knows all this. He knows the history. He knows the current political climate. Jesus could have done things differently. He could have put together a real show of force if he wanted to. 
If he was going head to head with the powers that be, Jesus could have wiped them off the face of the earth. Yet Jesus rides into town on Eeyore. We, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is what Jesus has been doing from the get-go. Right after Jesus was baptized back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And, and there in the wilderness, Jesus was, was tempted. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Talk about self-control. I can't go grocery shopping after not eating for four or five hours and not buy a bunch of stuff I don't need. The tempter comes back a second time, challenging Jesus this time to throw himself down from the highest point of the temple. And Jesus again responds with scripture, it is also written, do not put, your Lord, your, put the Lord your God to the test. Then the tempter comes back a third time, this time taking Jesus to a very high mountain, showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. The tempter tells Jesus that Jesus can have it all if he'll just bow down and worship him. Again, Jesus responds with scripture saying, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And finally, Matthew tells us, Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. These were real, actual temptations. Jesus was being tempted with ways of ruling and displaying power like the people wanted him to. He could have done incredible things, but to all of it, Jesus says, no. This is not how the kingdom of God would play out. This is not how God's kingdom operates. Jesus didn't say no to turning the stones into bread because bread is somehow bad for his diet. Jesus said no to that temptation because self-control isn't about the self. It's about becoming aligned with the ways of God. Saying no to the tempter meant saying yes to the Father who sent Jesus. Displaying self-control as a fruit of the Spirit isn't about you. It's not about me. It's not, it's not about making a better version of myself or yourself. Self-control is saying no to things in ways that are not of God so that we can say yes to things in ways that are of God. Self-control is about becoming aligned with God's purposes and God's mission it's saying no so that we can say yes. In that process of saying no to harmful ways of living, we do, in fact, become more of who God created, has created us to be. In that way, we become more like Jesus, who showed us what it means to be truly human. I want to return to that passage in Matthew 21. Jesus, as, as we've learned, doesn't come into town riding on a, gore, on a war horse with guns a-blazing. He makes his final procession into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Remember all the expectations of the people, who they hoped Jesus would be for them. The kind of deliverance they wanted. Remember that Jesus is in full control here. The first thing he does, he enters the temple courts and he drives out all who are buying and selling. He proceeds to overturn the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Why on earth would Jesus do this? Why would he behave this way? I mean, we know that the, the fruit that we've been talking about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we know that these are of the Spirit. That is, they have their source in the Spirit. That is, they are from God. And Jesus, the Son of God, surely this Jesus, must possess these fruit in abundance 
because Jesus is God. So how could Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, act in such a way? Let's let Jesus answer that question for us. What is it that compelled him to do what he did? In verse 13, Jesus says, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting a couple of Old Testament passages here. When Jesus says that my house will be called the house of prayer, he's referencing Isaiah chapter 56. It's a beautiful chapter that contains words of welcome for people like eunuchs and foreigners and exiles to the temple. Those who might otherwise be cut off are given a space of welcome in the temple. If you're not familiar with the temple or what the temple is supposed to represent, it was a place where heaven and earth met. There's a fantastic video by the Bible Project about the temple. You can Google that, look that up on YouTube, and this is what they get at in the video. The main point is that the temple is the place that overlaps with God's heavenly dwelling. So when God in Isaiah 56 says that this is a place where eunuchs, foreigners, and exiles are welcome, then that means that God's kingdom is open to people like this. When Jesus says that his house is to be a house of prayer, he's talking about this chapter that sees the temple as being for all people, a house of prayer for all nations. It's not for a select few. It's not for the elite, the morally pure, those who could afford it. It's a kingdom for all nations, especially those, especially those who are cut off and marginalized. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The second part of that verse, verse 13, says, Jesus says that they have made a temple a den of robbers. This is from Jeremiah 7, 11. Jeremiah 7 is a rough chapter. The prophet has some tough words for God's people. Here's a snapshot beginning at verse 2b. Hear the word of the Lord, you people. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Jeremiah is speaking words of judgment to God's people for trusting in the temple in ritual worship while failing to love their neighbor. In particular, the, 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 the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. They've also dabbled in worship of other gods. And, in, and through Jeremiah, the Lord says to the people, God's people, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? After all these years, the people haven't learned. Instead of creating a, a space of welcome for the outsiders, they have used that space to indulge who? Themselves. If you notice, Jesus overturned the tables of those selling doves. Doves or pigeons were what poor people were to present as their sacrifice at the temple because that's what they could afford. This is the offering that Mary and Joseph offered at the temple according to Luke's gospel. But now, those who were selling the doves were doing so at exorbitant rates. They were sticking it to the poor people who had no other options. This is what drove Jesus to flip tables and drive people out. The temple was supposed to be a place where heaven and earth overlapped, but had failed to be that place. 
God's people had failed to live in ways that reflected God's character and God's justice, and Jesus had had enough. I guess, I bet you can get a sense of how this made the people feel. The people who had just welcomed Jesus into the city as a king, the people who had hoped that Jesus would bring about a revolution, a liberation, a salvation from the big bad Romans, and now this Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, from Nazareth, was calling them out for not living as they were supposed to live as God's holy people. Let's get back to Jesus. It seems to me that flipping over some tables and getting after people was, was pretty restrained for Jesus. But do you get a sense of what Jesus made? Made Jesus feel this way? I heard an illustration the other day about this. Imagine coming home and finding your teenager or some other loved one doing drugs in your home. They had a history of this behavior and you knew how it had affected them and everyone else. You would be hurt, you'd be outraged knowing that this behavior was hurtful to, to them and others. And so you might not knock the drugs and the paraphernalia off the table. You might shout about your hurt. You might become a, even a little unhinged. That's not how you raised your child. And so there's Jesus. The children of God were not behaving like they were raised. Jesus could have done a number of things, devastating things, but Jesus, the one who rode into town on a donkey, makes a brief commotion, and then does something that only Jesus can do. Verse 14 says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So immediately after Jesus' little outburst, Matthew says that who? The blind and the lame came to Jesus. Where? The temple. What did he do? He healed them. In that place, Jesus began to put right what God's people had failed to do. In, in, in his body, Jesus brought healing and wholeness to the blind and the lame. In Jesus, heaven and earth came together. In Jesus, God's kingdom broke into the world and began to make things right. Don't you long for God to make things right? And rather than rejoicing, the chief priests, the teachers of the law became indignant. They got mad because the children were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. I read something recently that said, if the noise of children bothers you, the absence of children and teens will be deafening to you. There at the temple, Jesus welcomes the blind, the lame, and the children. Those who have no other advocate. Those whom the people of God were called to love and to care for. But the people had been unfaithful and they had failed to live in, in, that, in that proper alignment with God. Instead of God at the center of their lives, they had moved themselves to the center. God become, had become simply a way, a, a vehicle for their own self-interest. Self had replaced God. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? As we gather here on Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week, on a day when we cry out, Hosanna! knowing that in just a few short days we'll experience the agony of Good Friday. 
What does it mean for us, people who desire to be full of the Holy Spirit, who desire to live in alignment with God's ways and God's mission? Self-control isn't about making us better versions of ourselves. Living a life of self-control means saying no to ways of living that are hurtful to others or ourselves. And it means saying yes to ways of living that where we are freed, freed to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves. In the end, self-control isn't about me. It's about God and God's mission in this world. And God's mission is always about people. In, in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I, I think it's fitting for us to, to share in this meal together today. From Jesus' time in the wilderness being tempted by the Satan to, to the entry into Jerusalem, Jesus said no to ways of revolution that didn't look like the kingdom of God. God's kingdom wouldn't come through power, through intimidation, or through violence. That was the way of Rome. That was the way of every superpower. That will be the way of every superpower. God's kingdom always comes through lives surrendered to God's will and to God's mission. Let me repeat that. God's, God's mission, God's kingdom, always comes through lives surrendered to God's will and to God's mission. At the cross, we see heaven and earth intersect, for that is where God is most fully known. And there, as the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There, you're going to find eunuchs, exiles, foreigners, children, the blind, the lame, the dispossessed. As I've been thinking about how to end this message, I've been thinking about two groups of people. The first would be those I just named. The ones who have been pushed out, taken advantage of, forgotten, all in the name of God. You have found your, maybe you found yourself in that place where heaven and earth are supposed to intersect and you just feel lost and abandoned. The other group is, is probably the rest of us, the faithful. The ones who show up week after week after week. We know how to do this thing. We know how to make things work out for us. We have more power than you might think. And if we yield our power in ways that keeps people out, it's not the power of Jesus. For the power of Jesus breaks down walls. It tears the divide between the, un the, between the holy and the unholy and makes possible new life for all. For each and every person, as Pastor Rob always says, for each and every person that we will ever meet. But maybe especially those who will never intersect our paths. Because, quite honestly, sometimes our pasts have become too comfortable, too sanitized, and too holy. Yet on this Palm Sunday, we see Jesus there at the temple, on the outside of the temple, with those whom others want out. Jesus has come and given his life for us all, for every one of us. He wants all of us to be at his table, and he gets upset when others are left out. And so that's what we remember as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, the world, and even sometimes in Christian circles, we want to, we're told to abandon the donkey and take up horses and chariots. But we know that those are the ways of the flesh. You have called us to live a different way, the way of Jesus. 
May we trust you even when it looks like we are losing, knowing that the ultimate victory is in your hands. We entrust ourselves to you today as an act of faith. Hosanna to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.